welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is July 7th, um, 2020. It's a Tuesday. I think we're going to have this out today. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. No guests today, but we want to talk about a lot of the things that have been happening on the news. Uh, I'm here with Tim and Andy. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Good. Yeah, how are you guys doing? It's been a while, it seems like. Yeah. Andy, there's like, I, I'm always, uh, nobody can see this, and so maybe it's a bad way to start a podcast, but there's a giant foam finger in the background of your Zoom window. <laughs> what is that? It's uh, Lin- It's like an orange foam finger. What team is it's that It's Sanity, baby. I don't even it, yeah I don't remember how I got it I've been carrying it around with me for eight years shouldn't it have a <laughs> shouldn't have two fingers up to do like the you know like the Asian <laughs> I don't even know what, what is that called yeah the peace like sign Hawaii. the peace sign, sign. yeah the peace sign it's, like it only has one finger up in the air I want it yeah, to be more it would have been much um, worse to have your marketing oh uh, yeah that's uh <laughs> I've, would that have been problematic or not? I can't know. <laughs> like, rem- remember the so did you go part- to the games? I, no, like, is that where you got I them? was, unfortunately, out of the country the entire time, so it was awful. Oh. Uh, but, uh, yeah. You I missed, missed it? it. I, was, I was reading your, I was reading yeah, your was articles cool. about it on Grantland. It was very yeah. cool. And, um, <laughs> yeah, Where's your finger, is, Jay? <laughs> I don't, I, I'm still trying to figure out if the two fo- if the two fingers up foam finger thing would have been racist or not. Like, there's certain <laughs> things that are, seem very racist. Like, remember they did like the fortune cookie thing where his head popped out of a Chinese takeout where? menu, and they had no, that, they had that racist Chinese takeout font. That was at Madison no. Square Garden. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah, so that one felt, I was like, oh, well, that's oh kind of racist, you know, <laughs> that's but um, I, the two foam finger, I think, I don't know, it feels like an inside joke. If it was it uh, distributed by Asians for yeah. other Asians, that might help, but if it was James Dolan yeah. making money yeah. off of it, it's not great. Yeah, it's all about power. Um, <laughs> we must we must examine the power relationship between the racist memes that we have um i had this conversation with my friend dexter who uh you know shout out to dexter he and it was when we both were correspondents at vice and we would have a lot of time off um not off but you know like you spend a lot of time when people are setting up the cameras and stuff and uh we had this long conversation once about what the most racist font was and uh i i said it was the chinese takeout font yeah the fake even though I don't even think the Chinese takeout font is that racist, but he said uh, that his that the Sanskrit font was the most uh, racist font. You oh, take a look funny. at it because I uh, I want to. I don't know why I want to discuss this, but um, was... especially since no one can see it. But hey, everybody at home listening to this, Google <laughs> Sanskrit font on your phone. We'll just put our show notes in it. <laughs> I've never seen yeah. the Sanskrit font. <laughs> Well, his Dexter's point, which I do, which I have actually started noticing, is that everything uh, that is done by white people to describe Africa in like a fly or something is done in the Sanskrit font, and so it is signifying the same hilarious. way that the Chinese takeout font is a signifier, but that the Chinese takeout font is less racist in Dexter's estimation because it's so obvious uh-huh. that you can be in on the joke. Whereas the Sanskrit font is so is a little bit obscure, but doing the exact same thing, but you can't be in on the joke because nobody knows about it, which I actually found to be a somewhat compelling That's explanation. That's actually kind of convincing. But I thought also white people used papyrus to do Africa. Oh, no, 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 not Sanskrit. Papyrus font. Okay, That's what he was talking okay. about. I'm I was sorry. Like, oh, I don't my know God. The Sanskrit. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Papyrus font. Yeah, yeah. And you guys have seen that SNL Ryan Gosling thing, <laughs> no. right? 
<laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. There's papyrus. an incredible skit by yeah. Ryan I think I definitely... on Saturday Night Live about the papyrus font, which is basically just that, like, the film Avatar. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's like a five bajillion dollar film, and then they used <laughs> papyrus. Yeah, that is like, true. That is true. It's um, like an amazing... I, I apologize for the last minute of amazing audio content where we're talking about a font that nobody can see, but... <laughs> And then and then I misnamed the font that was in it, but yes, it's oh, papyrus. Wow. But uh, okay, that makes more sense. I, I actually, I actually have agree with Dexter. I have to say, I know I think Dexter is right because I do think that the Chinese takeout font, like we would use it on our show, uh-huh. you know. Right. But, if, uh, but I don't think I would feel very uncomfortable using the papyrus font. But I also think that like it's not the same inside joke that's very obvious yeah. to everybody. Mm. Where you're like almost reclaiming it or whatever the term is, mm-hmm. when it's black people doing the sand, doing the papyrus font. That was yeah. Dexter's point, and I, I agree with Dexter. Smart anyway, guy. That's uh, we're ten <laughs> minutes into our show now. Um, <laughs> the first thing that the first thing that we're going to discuss is uh, something that is not funny. That is very serious, and it's uh, happened in the last few days, last couple of days, I would say. And it is that ICE has. And it's a little bit unclear on what the details are, but what it seems to say is that if a school, a university only has online classes, that uh, international students cannot stay in the country. And this is an order by ICE. Is that right? Am I getting yeah. this right? Or they can't. The, the options are move to another school where there is face to face. And people online are strategizing about, you know, have a one on one tutorial or, um, um, you know, schedule like a specific, you know, like faculty are strategizing about ways to mm-hmm. get around this. <clears throat> you know, it's, I don't want to be on the record making a wrong prediction, but it does seem like there's going to be some pushback in schools. It wouldn't be that difficult for schools to kind of get around, find loopholes to this. You know, they just yeah. need like one hour of face to face instruction. Um, is, is that the standard that they put that out that? there? Yeah. The standard of what, like zero face to face is, yeah, yeah. Like, what is the standard that where you have to where it counts as being in class cons, uh, instruction? And you don't have to go home, because I I, I agree, I've seen some of these solutions as well here in Berkeley. Some of the students are doing things where they're doing tutoring. Mm-hmm. So, like uh, at Cal, this is from a site that's called Overheard at UC Berkeley, which I actually should probably get on because I love, I love. <laughs> there's nothing more I love than uh, completely. <laughs> Uh, unsourced gossip, <laughs> but overheard the latest restriction on non-immigrant students needing to take at least one in-person class to stay in the United States. Would any international students attending this fall be interested in enrolling in D- in a decal? Uh, what would meet in person outside six feet apart with masks so that they don't have to transfer? Mm. I would likely do this through the anthropology department. So let me know what your interests are and if you'd be willing to begin with. So that's like, it's like faculty members sponsoring a... Yeah discussion section i think which would count as a class which yeah. would avoid this right yeah um so yeah people so are doing there's that. some like very small amount of hours that would be necessary for it to be considered hybrid and therefore yeah. okay is yeah. the thing yeah. I, I guess so. it'll take some experimentation and litigation yeah. right because this is basically you're overturning a pandemic policy that made it okay, right? Because previously, like a year or two ago, it was also not okay to be an international student and be only in online classes. Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, like that was the baseline. And then during the pandemic, they were like, actually, it's okay because like no one can go to class. And now they're trying to go back to normal, you know, because ostensibly it would be like to to prevent the sorts of frauds where you are like Mm. an international student, but you just like sit 
and looking but at the But now they're like promoting it or, cha- or, the, or, or championing it. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, but this is obviously right. motivated by a lot yeah. more than just yeah. a return yeah. to normal. Um, yeah, so my sense is that, you know, this affects a lot of people and a lot of people on Twitter are talking about how this affects them personally or they have students from around mm-hmm. the world. Um, I think if we're just going to kind of psychoanalyze the Trump administration, this is probably <laughs> going back to a U.S.-China thing, right? Like the Chinese students make up one third, yeah. by far the number one group of international students. It's the, the thing I looked up said 34% Chinese, 18% Indian, and then no other countries like mm-hmm. double digits. Um, and yeah, and especially in the in the uh, in STEM. Right, I, right, I would assume yeah. even more concentrated. Yeah, and then there's been yeah. talk for a while about how. The numbers of students from China coming to study in the U.S. institutions really exploded over the last decade, and a lot of schools kind of, you know, made budget plans on the assumption that we can always just replace U.S. declining enrollment with more Chinese enrollment, but that has actually right. begun to plateau the last couple of years. I don't know if has if it's directly related to the you know so-called Trump trade war. Um, so I think you know this all gets back to I mean it gets back to you know geopolitics. It gets back to the sustainability of the university and you know aside from this there's a lot of discussions happening about you know whether or not like what like should we go back should schools go back online should they come back in person um there's safety concerns but there's also real economic concerns that a lot of these schools mm-hmm. are basically operating like year to year they don't well that's the part i don't really understand yeah. which is that like it seems like the people who are going to suffer outside of the students who are international are the schools right. that re- rely on international students totally. to pay higher tuitions to be there, and also the cities in which these schools are yeah. at, right? Because um, have you been to Stony Brook, New York? Yeah. Tammy, have you been there? Really interesting. Yeah, and a good friend teaches there. It's a strange place, right? Like, so, like, what? Yes. Tammy, what? What is the most? Be our tour guide to <laughs> Stony Brook. What is well, the, I was curious what's the what most you were going to say. What's but... the most predominant <laughs> restaurant type in Stony Brook? <laughs> I would say cheap Chinese eats. Yeah, right? It's weird because, okay, so my uh, father-in-law uh, and his wife live in, um, live in live outside Stony Brook. And mm-hmm. when I met my wife 10 years ago and I went out there to visit them, um, there was not that many Chinese restaurants. And in the last 10 mm. years, it's absolutely exploded to the point where they have better like noodle places than you can find in Manhattan. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's like no, really totally. good. And some large portion of that economy in that yep. town has turned over to completely just being for the Chinese international right. students. And then the reason why those places exist is because they're obviously competing in an open market. It's not like, you know, the city is like wants, you know, is doing preferential zoning or something like that to give to make more Chinese <laughs> yeah, restaurants. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, they're driving really part true. of the economy. But I don't like what happens if you don't have those international students, then you can't just. But the question them, is, right? I don't think Stony Brook has announced it. And this law seems targeted at schools that have already announced it and to perhaps deter schools from making future announcements. And I think the schools yeah. that I would assume that. But why do why do why do they want to do that though? Why don't why why does it matter the Trump administration and ICE if st- if schools are fully online? So or like not? Trump tweeted something like schools must open. So that, that I think that's might be political cover. Like oh I just really care about students um, having you know 
an education or the economy getting back on track. There's also, I think, a lot of people speculating it's Stephen Miller and his just crazy white nationalist views or just like, or, you know, they know they're going to lose the election. So on the way out, they're just going to like kick everyone in the butt. And, and their enemies are, you know, non-white people in universities, right? Uh, did you? Well, I did, think it's also coronavirus denialism, though, right? Because this whole thing is like, we're ready to open. Everything's fine. Like nothing's going wrong. So that's also feeds yeah, into Yeah, or like this kind of forced choice of like, either you believe us or, you know, like you pay the consequences. Like, but no one, but like there's no... Mm-hmm. They're not actually going to persuade anyone that coronavirus isn't a problem and that it's safe to go into schools, right? So it's really just kind of sticking a gun to people's heads and saying, like, you know, make a choice. Uh, but if you look yeah. at the list of schools, I was kind of surprised. There's a list out there, um, people can uh, maybe we'll put a link into it, of schools that have al- already announced they're going fully online. I had heard of what are the so schools? I had heard of Harvard. I think that's what pr- most people are thinking yeah. of. But aside from Harvard, it's really not fancy elite schools at all. Um, most of them are on the West Coast, the UC system. A lot of them are in Washington State, Evergreen, Eastern Washington. Um, But that's just to say these are the places that have decided. A lot of places have just been delaying their decisions. So the list isn't necessarily indicative of a trend, right? Although, yeah, I mean, I'm sure they have thoughts on who has already I mean, it's really kind of striking how California-centric this list is. Um, well, are you so? Are you saying then that like uh, are you are you making the argument that Trump is or Stephen Miller, whoever it is, is making a calculated decision to try and force people into a difficult choice between having in-person classes or just you know saying goodbye to all their international students that they're you know that they've that they're forty chessing this <laughs> in some sort of way. <laughs> Because that's a part where I, you know, that's a part where I, I, look, I'm not saying that they're incapable of doing this sort of stuff, but I will say empirically that when you even ascribe a little bit of cleverness <laughs> to the administration, it tends to fall <laughs> apart. And so my sense of this is that Trump and Stephen Miller realize that they're on the out. And what they're trying to do is that Stephen Miller, who is, you know, legitimately the most racist person mm-hmm. in America and probably uh, is, a, you know, I don't know. I, I, I hope that the rest of his life is filled with abuse and screaming that his family hates him. You know, like his wife seems just as bad. Did you read this insane quote from his wife? She was in a book. Uh, she's in one of this book that's coming up, I think, by Jacob Soboroff. And he interviews her and she, he, he, she says she felt no sympathy for the, for the detained children at the border because she doesn't understand. It wasn't because, you know, I think that we should preserve America. She just said... Because I don't understand why they don't assimilate. Why do we have little Havana? Mm. Like, that was her rationale for not feeling any, like, humanity in her person. Mm. Or just, like, you can't even think of the right reason, you know? Like, you can't even think of, like, the actual fascist reason. You can only think about your brain melted. Why do we have a little Havana and not a little white? You know? Like, like, it's how fucking stupid these people are. So, at at this point, that's why I have a hard time attributing it to, like, any sort of clever thing. I just think they're throwing the fucking kitchen well, th- uh, sink of anti-immigrant stuff out sure. there. You know, like they're doing everything and nobody yeah. really cares. And I think that that's a victory for them because, uh, you know, like there's no real outrage about any of the stuff they're doing because I think that people are a worried about the coronavirus and B don't really care about immigrants, you know, so. Um, well, the last three restrictions they've made have been targeted toward more like highly skilled or upwardly mobile populations of immigrants, right? Yeah. Like, International students, the one right before this was H-1B skilled workers. Right. We should say also this is international students, but also the people who are in vocational training. So sort mm-hmm. of like people are kind of doing, you know, school-related practicums. And then the one right before that was against Chinese journalists mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah. 
there was Chinese right. visa restriction oh, there. Yeah, so right. I feel like it's a mix of Sinophobia and also trying to attack, you know, a sort of, I guess, comparatively privileged set of immigrants so as to sort of mask some of their earlier, more outright xenophobic behaviors. But it's all of a piece. But I do, I do think the university part of this is yeah. specific, right? Like there is something about, I think they hate, they hate, I mean, I don't know if they believe it or not, but that's a big yeah. part of the right-wing culture war, right? Is to say universities mm-hmm. are these bastions of blah, blah, blah. They have no sympathy for them. And if you just kind of think about how this would actually yeah, work. Yeah, fair enough. Wait, bastions of what? What? what I have no idea what you meant to know. say when you said blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like liberal masturbatory yeah. culture. Oh, like oh indoctrination. I thought you were saying yeah. like that, that universities are bastions of like Chinese soft power. <laughs> yeah, but, but... but... That's why I needed a clarification. <laughs> Maybe. I have no idea where you're going. <laughs> I think both are true, by the way, but go ahead. Yeah. They, <laughs> to a small they could, extent. Yeah, they yeah. could believe both. I don't know. Um, yeah, like they, they, if you just kind of think about what this would look like in practice, it's impossible, right, to ask these hundreds of thousands of students. A, people have pointed out it's going to be impossible for them to actually go back to their countries. Flights are, you know, there's restrictions yeah. on flying right now. Um, Seriously. You, you know, and a lot of people obviously left their country because precisely because they had no reason uh, to stay there. Um, and then, like, hundreds of thousands of people are, like, waking up at 2 in the morning. Um, to take these classes for a whole year, like no one's going to yeah. do that. They're all going to drop out. So, so there, how many international students are there? I think f- in America, three to four hundred thousand. Well, that might just three be the, actually. That might be, should we double do? Should we do a fact check? We should check. <laughs> what do you think it's going to feel like at your university, Andy? We actually, what's the We chart? actually have not had a big wave of international students. Um, there have been attempts, and okay. when I talk to the Chinese students. In my classes, I asked them, like, why did you come here? And they, you know, they were recruited to come here, et cetera. But, you know, that doesn't mean that there's a lot of individuals I know, right, like undergrads and graduates, and they've um, been yeah. dealing with this. But we've, we've already announced that we're not doing online unless, you know, yet. So it's a million. A million is the total. So I think there's over 300,000 from China. Jeez. Well, okay, so, like, I mean, that's a good question, Tammy. I will say that in the city of Berkeley where I reside, in which – there are many right. international students. Um, <laughs> I, it will have a great, it will, just like in Stony Brook, it'll have a profound impact on the local economy. You know, yeah. there are tons of uh, quote unquote Asian ghettos. Please don't cancel me for using the term. I'm only using the term <laughs> that is used by the younger generations of woker Asians than me, um, <laughs> where you have a lot of stores and restaurants that are only cater towards the Chinese population, basically, and some, you know, like mm-hmm. maybe some Koreans, but it's mostly East Asians who eat there, and me. Um, I'm like the guy, you know, I'm like the creepy old guy there just eating in the corner by himself. <laughs> looking First at you're phone. trying to get into the Bible study, <laughs> then you can follow them to the restaurant. <laughs> I basically live the life of a 25, or like, not 25, like a 19-year-old Asian student at Cal. <laughs> Because I'm constantly complaining about work. I feel overworked when I really don't have that much work to do. All I eat is, like, noodles. And then um, I sit in a coffee shop and read my phone and sit on social media for, like, 10 hours a day. We have the same exact life. (laughs) The only difference is when things are over, I go home to my family and they go to their, you know, they go to their dorm and, and, I don't know, do do Zanga chat or something. Um... I was. Uh, I, I. I think it will have a huge effect here. Um, yeah. To put it very bluntly, you know, like it, it will feel like a different city. A lot of those restaurants will close. 
Um, and uh, the, you know, I think that the, 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 the feel around town will change as well too because the international part of it is really evident. And um, I actually don't even know what Cal will look like if it's not for international students. I mean, I think it would just be like eight white kids and 45 Asian American <laughs> kids, you know, and that'll be the school. <laughs> but, but I don't know, maybe that's good. It doesn't sound that cool to me. I don't know. I feel like, there, I, think, I think, I don't know, Tammy has the lawyer, the person with a law degree. How inflexible is this? Or how are there possibilities for this to be like re- repealed by legislative bodies or? I think lawyers are already eyeing yeah. it for litigation. It's called a temporary could, final rule. So it's like, could they stop the it before August procedure. or September? <clears throat> I suppose they could withdraw it. Yeah. A court yeah. could enjoin it. Um, I'm sure immigrant rights advocates are trying to yeah. gear up towards it. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I, I really, there's a lot her. of, there's a lot of time. It's mid July. Right? They would have to start like buying tickets to leave now. Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I mean, it's it's completely. But can they even yeah. come? Well, that's the, the other States? thing. A lot of them um, are like in it's summertime and they're like back home already. Oh, yeah. I got it. Yeah, it's it seems. I, I I kind of am of the. I don't know. Am I wrong? I just feel like they're just basically any anti-immigrant thing that they yeah. can think of. They're just putting out there right yeah. now in the hopes that it sticks and that this is another one. Um, Andy, I have a question for you, which uh, and maybe we should move on after this question, but like, it is true that a large percentage of STEM graduate degrees in, are taken up by international students from so. China, yeah. right? Why, why is that? Like, what is there? Like, this is something that Tom yeah. Cotton is always mad about, right? And I think it's something that we, as uh, liberals... Or whatever. I, we're yeah. not liberals, but you know, as uh, people who are not <laughs> racist, uh, get mad about because we don't like Tom Cotton and we think that uh-huh. it sounds xenophobic. But is there anything to it? Like, is there anything to the to, to the idea that such yeah, a high percentage well, of it's China ch- of STEM degrees are are being taken up by it's China Chinese and nationals? India? Um, and my assumption mm-hmm. is that this is a continuation of a longer pattern of immigrants from. Uh, countries that have like industrial policies that really promote within their education system going into that field of work knowing that well with the goal of going overseas for a prestigious science degree overseas a lot of my relatives did this I think yours did too right yeah Um, and on the flip side from the United States perspective this is like cheap labor right They, they get they hire these student international students who I don't know the specifics. They get kind of paid less, or and it's and they're higher quality, quote unquote, higher quality. There's more to choose from, um, and they can kind of control them by kind of you know holding their immigration forms over them um, as workers within their laboratories. So in a way, it's like yeah. you know it's a, it's an escape for the immigrants, but it's also um, cheaper labor. Or, but it it is to study like just to be clear it is to study and to go back to home country to improve the infrastructure of home mm. country right like that part is not I'm true not sure, because I'm not sure I about that. look yes there this, this is a historical thing it has happened for a long time in the seventies a lot of Korean people came to the United States to study and there are people who worked for like the Department of the Interior Department yep. of Engineering in Korea. And they came here to get their PhDs. And the reason they did it, if you talk to them, is because like 
they're like our right. shit in Korea sucked. You know, like I would try and make like a micrometer or like a magnify uh, like a magnifying glass and every yeah. piece would break. You know, and everyone around me was so stupid <laughs> yeah. they didn't know how to make it. And then I got to the United States. And I learned how to do all that stuff, yeah. and I went back, and we knew how to make this yeah. microscope or something like that. Um, that is true, right? Like that is well, part yeah, of what's happening. I think that's less yeah. true now, that... though, right? I mean, that's... I, I don't know if it's less true now. I mean, I, I but it, Tammy, like you know, people like this too, right? Like from Korea, who who would come to the United States and then and then go back, and the idea was always for them to go back. I mean, that's why my dad came to the United States. He came over here to get a PhD. And he, he, was didn't to go back. But he didn't I mean, go back. But he didn't go back. But yeah, a lot but of I people do go back, depends. is my point. Yes, I think yeah. yes. And I would say yes and no. It seems like those circuits of globalization yeah. are so much more complicated now. And I think also, you know, it's not just the fact that people want to go back to because their countries are under-resourced. It's that, like, the state of U.S. hegemony and education is such that, like, let's say you want to be an academic. You basically need to get a PhD from the U.S. in order to become an academic in, like, most of the developing No, no, I agree. Yes, yes. Right? So, anyway, but I I guess I just mean, like, I feel like the reasons people would go back are very mixed, but, like, so many people also just want to stay. And, you know, it's it's changed over time. I I think in the 70s, it it was... Not sure if that's the best In the 70s, it was definitely... (laughs) People might be reconsidering now, right? (laughs) Since Corona. Time to say goodbye. Um, No, it's okay. No, I'm I'm, I'm very (laughs) pro-American these days. Um, The the only point I'm trying to make is that when Tom Cotton says that, he's saying it at a point of pure xenophobia and racism. But, like... There is some truth to the fact that American universities, especially in STEM fields, are... I'm asking, is there any truth to the idea that it is being used as a way to improve the infrastructure of countries that many people think are our rivals? Uh, Yeah, maybe. But it wasn't always the case, right? Like, it didn't used to be you're choosing this country versus that country. Um, It used to be like, oh, we could work in China or we could work in the U.S., but, but there's, there's an open passage between the two. Like, yeah, and there's also like a diplomatic reason for that, right? If you are the guy who's making a better yeah. microscope in Korea, and Korea is partnered, South Korea is partnered with the United yeah. States, partnered, meaning like, you know, under the <laughs> imperial foot of the United States, <laughs> um, then that benefits yeah. the United States yeah. as well. Definitely. Well, lot- yeah. And no. it's not like Korea and China and India don't have the world's leading scientists there and facilities there. So I guess my point also with the whole academic thing is that there's a credentialing process, right? So it's not just that, like, they're going back to develop their economies. They also may just be here to, like, acquire English yeah. and the degrees that will help them. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the last, all right. So can I say one, uh, one last sec- point on this? Go ahead. Yep. The other thing this story made me think of was the discussion I had with, you know, Brian two weeks ago about tankies. And there's a study came out recently on how, you know, it's the methodology, you know, it's kind of like a survey type study. So it's not the most scientific, but the idea that a lot of the reason a lot of Chinese nationals um, feel it's not like they come to the United States and are like brainwashed in advance about how loyal they are to the China or whatever. I think a lot of them do respond or react to what they perceive as discrimination on United States university mm-hmm. campuses that may reinforce nationalism among Chinese nationals or perhaps perhaps also Chinese Americans or people who are kind of in between. So again, this is just thinking diplomatically, like what is the desired end goal here for the United States, all United States politicians, I guess, but the Trump administration, they're really reinforcing a sense of like it's us versus them and you don't belong here. 
Definitely. Yeah, and they're just trying to out anti-China Biden. Right. You know, and Biden's going to try to do the same. Part of yeah. like, I mean, that's the question. Like, what is yeah. Biden going to say about this? China's gonna be, Biden's going to be like, all Chinese restaurants must leave Stony Brook, <laughs> New York, right now. We already have a Chinatown in New York. You know, replace it with a Friendly's and a Taco Bell. You know, it's like, um, <laughs> um, all right. So our next topic is about an article that was in the New York Times that Tammy sent to us, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it, and it was by Jennifer Medina, and it was about uh, it's about where. Latinos or Latinx people fit within the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, there was a lot of, I think, you know, it's one of these pieces that, that inspired all, a whole range of opinions online. <laughs> um, and I think that that was a testament to its strength, honestly, because the people who are annoyed by this sort of stuff found reason to be annoyed with it for, for what I thought were dumb reasons. But, you know, some of those people who are annoyed by it also did, I think, confront it in a way and argue about it in a way that I found to be convincing. And then on the other side, I think that it, it provoked a question that I think we should discuss here on the show because I think it has relevance not only to Asian Americans, but to all immigrants. Um, and it's, here, I'll read from the piece, which is that um, in New York, Los Angeles, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and many other cities, thousands of young Latinos have shown up to Black Lives Matter protests in recent weeks. Sometimes they speak only quietly about their own concerns of anti-Latino racism. Other times they are more overt. In Phoenix, activists wore face masks emblazoned with defund police, the last three letters marked in red to emphasize ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. An artist, <laughs> the New York Times, I love, I love their style. An artist passed out a silk-screened Aztec-style painting that showed a black jaguar and a brown tiger, each blending into each other, his own symbolism of the moment. Okay, so um, what do you think about this, uh, Tammy? What, like, do you, do you, like, did you find any resonance in Jennifer's piece to, to the experiences that you've had in, in protests now in Washington State and, and in New York City? Yeah, I thought she accurately reflected conversations I've had with friends or activists in Latino immigrant rights organizing. And I had mentioned to you, Jane and Andy, that I've been going to protests here in Tacoma. And the first one I went to, there was graffiti scrawled Mexican Lives Matter. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that's that's real. It's sort of this question. And, you know, I think um, Jennifer Medina's article is mild, right? Like it's um, it's carefully considered and, and reported and she's both both able to document the solidarity and the sort of anxiety about like the fail America's failure to recognize the Latino community. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a useful addition. And I, she's done things like this before that have been useful. Like at the twentieth anniversary of the LA riots, she had written a piece about Latino South Central and how like South Central had become South LA and is like very Latino, but like Latinos are the group that were most left out of the LA riots sort of dialogue. No, so I, I think read, this is, I you know, read that. Yeah. Yeah, it's good, you know, and I think she, I think California, where you live, Jay, I mean, this is a Latino state. You know, yeah. in a lot of yeah. states, like Latinos are the population that we all kind of need to think about and care about and be aware about. And, you know, I think to say that you know, I don't think anyone is in the Black Lives Matter movement, to be fair, is saying that it's only black people who are affected by this sort of violence. But it's clear that the moral authority right now is there with the black community, you know? Yeah, and yeah. I think- and and I, I, like she, her, uh, I agree with you. And, and I think that the piece was very careful. 
And I think it yes. needs to be careful because it's a very complicated point that she's making. But I think that instead of devolving into um, gibberish, which is what generally have, I, I do this all the time where I <laughs> kind of pull up short of making a point in print, especially in the New York Times, and then it just devolves into gibberish because <laughs> yeah. I'm, and then the editor's like, well, what are you trying to say? I'm like, well, listen, I know what I'm trying to say. I just don't know if I want to say it in your paper, you know, or if you want me to say it in your paper. And right. she very was able to do that very nicely. She, you know, um, and I, I, but, and I don't know, I'm not going to attribute it to her, but I think that the point of the article was essentially to ask, you know, look, and this is something I heard in Oakland too, where mm-hmm. two days into the protest in Oakland, a kid in, uh, a kid in yeah. Vallejo got shot, an 18 year old, you know, like a, yeah. a Latino kid gets shot by the cops. Two days after that, a kid in East Oakland gets shot in his car by the cops. You know, a Latino, a Mexican-American kid gets shot by the cops in his yeah. car. There's no mention of it at all, you know. And right. they, there are marches, but those are individual mm-hmm. marches for those kids organized by Latino organizers. And when you talk to those people, there is, not that the, all of them, but to many of them, there is this very quiet sense of, well, why are we the only mm-hmm. ones at our own march? I mean, I have so much to say because I've been doing interviews and thinking a lot about this and I feel like one of the things that's really hard to get around is the question of nationalism in the black liberation struggle you mm-hmm. know and this mm-hmm. is this isn't these are old questions we're just repeating questions that have been around forever right so but there is a sense in which if you think about certain like very prominent liberal voices and like the black liberation struggle that is very much like we are black people who built this country right and we've talked about right. like Eidos on this show before, yeah. I think, but you right. know, this idea of the distinction between black people globally and like Ameri- African Americans, like the descendants a- Eidos of meaning, uh, enslaved people. Yeah, it's like a hat. Just to yeah. explain to the listeners, it's yeah. a hashtag that means um, American descendants of slaves. And it's an online movement that is arguing essentially against that saying there is a distinction between black Americans who are descending from slaves and black Americans who are immigrants who came here will, willfully. Okay, Tammy, yeah. I didn't mean to, I just didn't want no, you to no, be misunderstood. Thank that. you. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, yeah. No, and I just, now I'm just talking gibberish, basically. But <laughs> yeah, yeah You're pulling up like, into gibberish land. Flow right exactly. through it. It's a podcast. Nobody cares. Exit. Um, <laughs> no, I think like this, this question of who has the real, does anybody have a monopoly on having been victimized by state violence? You know, and that, of course, the answer is no. But, you know, right now we are privileging the black struggle in this. And actually, like from an organizing perspective, I'm curious what you guys think. Like my perspective is you need a focus. It's good to have a focus. There isn't any reason why this movement can't contain other movements or lead to other movements. Jay, I think you're Mm -hmm. right that right now there's anxiety about whether or not it is doing that. I would say also it's new. So we kind of need to see um, I think the savvier it's, it's organizers not, among us are having conversations across class and race, is but it a lot really of people are because it's you know in some ways it's also six years old, right? In some year, in some ways it is, yeah, but in some ways it's six years is still new. new. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's relatively new. But I'm saying it did not start with George Floyd. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, sure. I, look, I uh, Tammy to answer your question, I, I, that which I think is the right provocation, which is to say that look. Tons of fucking people come out for this thing, the way that it's cast right now, right? The way that it is, like, White Fragility, everybody who we know thinks that White Fragility is a stupid book, but it's still the number one bestseller in America. There is a power to this form of identity politics that everybody has to acknowledge and, you know, should be willing to use for good purposes, even if you feel like 
it can be toxic and divisive and perhaps in the best interest of capitalism only. Like you have to acknowledge that there's millions of people who would come out for this and there are not millions of people who come out for, you know, the times when, uh, you know, Andy in college would hand out the daily worker at, you know, at like 125th street and, Broadway and be like, Hey, do you, are you guys into socialism? Like in, nobody took that newspaper, you know? So, so there's, there's, you have to, like that has to be discussed. That has to be like, uh, did you do that? Were, were you that type of Marxist in, in college? No, okay. no, no. That, that, no. Okay. I, yeah. I was handing out like Foucault. Oh, I remember. Uh, I do remember <laughs> that. When I got to Columbia, I remember that was one of the first things that happened. To yeah, me yeah, yeah. Yeah. Actually, yeah. I knew I knew some people who did that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. And I had just moved to New York from Maine. I had never lived in New York City before, and I was I was so I was so wowed by it. I was like, "Oh my god, New York is amazing!" This guy just handed me a socialist newspaper. <laughs> um, right, but you understand my point that there is like there is yeah. like this size of and scale towards sure. where this thing is effective, where it you can't just say that it's that it and and then you should wonder like. The next question would just be like, if the message was about state violence in general, would it lose some of its, um, you know, yeah. power yeah. to get people out in the streets? And I think it probably would, honestly. Like, I think there is something about the focus of the identity and something about the mm -hmm. incantations that are done, like you know, where people explain why Black Lives Matter and not All Lives Matter, that I think is gets in people's head and it forces them out as an individual choice. Right. But it's just I, I don't know. Like, yeah. I just don't yes. think that saying like Latinos, also, you know, also die from the police yeah. will yeah. bring as many people out, which is a strange thing, because like, you know, you think it would. I think what's interesting, Tammy, off of what you said about nationalism is that there is a certain historical structure to the BLM argument and especially reparations. Right, which is kind of like one of the the big rallying cries, which is that um, you have to address this original sin, quote unquote, of the country, um, and we have to look towards a certain period of time that, let's say, I don't know, predates what 1960s or slavery, right? But it's a certain moment of time that I think is certainly before the change of the demographics of this country mm -hmm. uh, from the 70s onwards, right? Like most of this is about before we move on into the future direction of whatever the United States will become or has become, we have to go back to this earlier moment. And I think there is a lot of resonance for that. I mean, this could, this is a temporal historical argument. I think it's also geographical because yes. you gather a lot of what you're talking about is the West Coast yeah. um, or I guess the Southwest, Southwest Definitely. is where a lot of the Latino concentration is. Right. And I think this argument about reparations and original sin obviously has a lot of resonance for like east of the Mississippi, right? The parts of the country that were really populated and where people living there still actually probably lived through the slavery era, you know, on one, one side or the other. But it's always kind of struck me living on the West Coast that that seems so abstract to me. Yeah. Right? Like it's almost somebody else's history. And, you know, I'm not on, I don't know what it's like mm. out there in Seattle now or California, but the to argue about reparations in the West Coast feels... It's like an intellectual argument. Like I know it's I know it's right or I know it's wrong, but like those were not the states. Those were they were not states. Or I don't know. I don't know about the exact dates, but like they were not functioning states or members of the United I know, States. But I, at the I time. grew up in North Carolina, and I will say that you know, I don't know. It makes I think maybe it, you're right that it's it's uh, it's geographic or something, but it makes total sense to me 
you know what does the idea of reparations is like you can yeah yeah you can feel that history there um that's exactly what i'm saying yeah yeah no i agree i agree with you i just don't know like i'm not sure what how it dilutes like the moral um the moral need or even like the idea of it because i i do think most people can imagine that you know like i don't think i i guess what i'm saying is that i don't think it was a sense memory of me growing up in north carolina and seeing tobacco fields when I drove right. outside of town or like, you know, going to Duke University, which obviously is problematic as hell outside of, you know, being a place where yeah. shitheads go like uh, that, that that is what informed my sense that slavery was bad. you know. <laughs> but I think what Andy is articulating is that there are different histories that are told from different places in this country. The history from the East Coast does think much more about the black white binary. Oh, yeah. Histories okay. on the Southwest and the West think much more about multiracialism right, right, and the right, indigenous yeah, people yeah, struggle. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yep, and no. I think I also wanted to note that like on the topic of reparations, there is this new generation of like black transnational thinkers that is talking about reparations, not just in the U.S. Like there were also more enslaved people brought to Jamaica than the U.S. Right. There's like so many complicated mm-hmm. things like there was a tweet going around about how some indigenous people owned black slaves, but also indigenous people were enslaved by white people who also had black slaves. They had native and black slaves. This whole shit is incredibly complicated. And, you know, the point about nationalism too, is that there's a fantasy in the American psyche that Latino people and other non-black, non-white people are new. Everybody's new, you know, but Mm. actually like these are also people who have, have like, whose labor was constitutive of the early days of the Republic and always has been. I started reading um, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one, one thing... How is it? St- By Ibram Kennedy. Yeah, one thing struck me... Now I've read the number one and the number two best-selling yeah. books. <laughs> in ver- but I've skimmed both of them. Um, <laughs> and I bought one and I didn't buy the other, and I'm not going to say which one I bought and which one I pirated. But uh, the... <laughs> I will say that the the... Something struck me while I was reading, and it was just that there is such a the the discourse around race in this country is still just assuming like a binary between white and black, right? And that that book also does that because there is he does mention black and brown, but he doesn't really mean black and brown. You know, he just means black. And I think that uh, because he's like, well, you have to like aggressively make an anti-racist policy, and he brings up affirmative action, and I'm like, well. It's not an anti-racist policy if you mean black and brown, right? Because uh, there's a lot of people who are black and br- who are brown who don't agree with affirmative action, who think that affirmative action actually actively harms them and discriminates them against them. So you're creating a consensus amongst all people of color, but you're really just talking about mm-hmm. black people when you're doing that. And that is something that happens all the time in this type of discourse. And yes. I think it's because the, the language and the... the sort of nostalgia that we have or the at least historical iconography that we have built up about race discussions is all from the civil Mm -hmm. rights movement 1950s 1960s when there weren't a lot of other people there really were mostly white and black people and so when people think in their heads about how they become anti-racist the the sort of infrastructure in their head that exists in terms of images is from the civil rights movement and so they reference things like Martin Luther King, right? Martin Luther King did not have to talk too much about Asian people because there weren't that many Asian people in America <laughs> at the time, even though he did speak about Asian people like from time to time. Um, Vietnam. Uh, yeah, so exactly. it's, it's still, like, I just don't know. And I think the reason why, like, a pure identity politics that discusses Black Lives Mattering is more powerful than one that is multi-nuanced and is more about solidarity is because almost everyone yeah. in America's head is programmed that way where race is... 
a binary, right? But what if it was just black and Latino? Like, just take us out of the equation. <laughs> We're just out. Black and Latino, because those are <laughs> We're self canceling. Those self canceling right. out of it. <laughs> those, those, because it's not either one group versus every group. How about like two groups and the <laughs> the two statistically largest groups? Yes, but the question there would be like, what is the goal, right? Like the the saliency right. of Black Lives Matter is that we have a particular problem and a particular population, and we can, right. you know, and the dream of that. I think, you know, from a social change perspective is you then you depart from that to broaden it and you think about like, well, what uh-huh. does that mean to organize with like white victims of state violence, brown victims of state right. violence, et cetera, right? Right. Mm. But, you know, I, I don't know. Just, I mean, I think it's. What would happen if you brought up how white people are killed by the police at a BLM? Tammy's already been canceled twice during this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, this is why I'm sheltering in place in my that, parents' house. That, that you know, say, yeah. to me. Um, it's very like, Mom and dad, I'm not going to be able to make money from writing anymore because I just got canceled <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think I was reading, reading Our podcast doesn't that. make any money, but I got canceled on it anyway. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, I'm just like farming in the backyard now to feed myself. Um, um, I, anyway. I, I think complicated questions. Yeah, no, and I, but I think we should, you know, I, I, the reason why I was so excited by that article was because I think that it was the first time that I'd heard that articulated outside of uh, organizing spaces and outside of just private conversations. Yes. And in private conversations, Mm -hmm. I heard it a lot, you know, and one of the things that was said was, uh, why didn't, and you know, I'm using the language that I heard, not the language that I uh, am, would express it in myself, but you know, the question was, well, where were they during the child detention or the child detention, child separation rallies? Where were they during during that? You know, like why should we show up to to their thing when they wouldn't show up to our thing? And that's yeah. it. Look, you can you can wave that away however you want, and you can you can bring up whatever counterexample or screenshot that you want of uh, showing <laughs> one person doing like you know like doing some sort of moment of solidarity with with uh, between like a black and a brown person. But the reality of it, which, you know, Tammy, I think you and I just having been to, and Andy, I think you as well know being on a college campus, is that the, uh, like that solidarity doesn't exist. I'm sorry, it just doesn't, you know? And it's like, those questions are more at the forefront of, you know, questions like, why didn't they come out for a child uh, separation uh, rallies? That's more at the forefront than any sort of screenshot of of an actual moment of solidarity between the two groups. Yeah. But then, I guess the question is, can can that solidarity be built, um, or are we are we just? Yeah, being pessimistic I think that, I think it can, and, but yeah. I think it's work because it's not natural. And you think, think it's work, like, like in what way? I think it's work. I think it's, you know, I'm a big fan of structure and organizing. <laughs> yeah. And I think you know this is like I went to a protest outside the local ice facility in Tacoma the other day, and that was a, mostly a Latino. Mm-hmm. movement moment right but you know there were also we were like the structure of it was basically like the organizer had her cell phone on and people inside the facility were calling her phone yeah and then they mm. were broadcasting the messages from people mm. and the people speaking from the inside were from the congo russia china the philippines yeah and then you know mexico and central america and then there was also a lot actually a pretty large black presence in the audience and I, hmm. I was curious about that because, as you were just saying, that solidarity isn't always apparent. And then later hmm. on in the program, I found out why. And it was because that 
Latino immigrant right, Latino-led immigrant rights organization had reached out to Black allies in the community and invited them there. Hmm. So my point is that that needs to be organized. It's a programmatic thing. You know, it's yeah. not just that people will like come and show up because they may not see it, that it's in their interest. But then there yeah. are these interstitial groups too, like black immigrants, right? One of the founders of BLM as the hashtag is Opal Tometi, who like came up out of the black immigrant rights struggle. Mm. Like mm. in New York, there's a great group called African Communities Together that, that does this work. And they like, obviously their bodies are both in both spaces. So anyway, yeah. No, my good. point that's is that point. we need structure and we need to organize yeah. and otherwise solidarity won't exist. That's also Tammy's point, uh, our, uh, notes on our podcast and our show notes. <laughs> that's what I we say every episode. Need, I apologize. We need structure and we need, um, yeah. that's, uh, that's no, Tammy, I, I, in the end agree with you and that that's where I hoped we would conclude. Um, I think yeah. that there are yeah. things that are happening that are very uncomfortable, and the only thing that I wish yes. that we would do is that we would discuss this this thing more. And that within the Asian American community, the reason why I get so mad about this penance garbage, which is just like, oh, we have to talk about anti-Asian, uh, we have to talk about like racism within the anti-Asian community, mm-hmm. and it, it's that it feels like a penance to get membership into a club, when in fact what you should just be doing is going to the protest and trying to figure out how your own struggle fits into it and then create your own movement and then use that as a way to have a coalition with the with with the greater movement, mm-hmm. right? Like that like that's the best way to do it organically in a way that feels real to the people instead of being sort of a thing that they can do so that they can check off a box saying that, you know, like I get my uh I don't know, wokeness card and now I can go teach uh creative writing at fucking Dartmouth or something like that. You know what I mean? That was way too specific. I did not mean Dartmouth. And the, uh, the person who took <laughs> creative writing at Dartmouth, I am 100% not talking about you. I love you. Um, I was just picking a random school in my head. Let's say, is, this, is this a real yeah, person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but I, I, I really don't, I honestly, sincerely don't mean him because I, I love him and I think he's a wonderful person. But let's, I don't know, like whatever, Princeton or something like that, which is, you know, that could be another person. But the, um, at X Ivy League uh, school. Oh, um, that's uh no. Chad really doesn't this teach. This is going terribly. Yeah. He's at Stanford yeah, now. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is okay. going so bad. <laughs> um, I I think that figuring out your own movement though cannot start without understanding the ways in which you need to start your own movement. Does that make sense? Like starting your own coalition, starting your own group within the greater structure can't start until you figure until you're honest about the ways in which that greater struggle might exclude some of your concerns. I don't know if that makes sense. I'm not sure it does, sorry. I'm saying that you have to basically just say, (laughs) we need to create our own group because um, just being part of this larger group is not going to be the most sustainable thing for us, right? Right, right. Like, we need to do something with our own community um, and I think, I don't know, it, like, Tammy, if you're seeing a lot more of that, like your story about people coming out to the ICE facility is very heartening to me. I went to a lot of ICE protests around the child detention stuff as a, uh, not as a journalist, but, you know, just as a protester or whatever. And I yeah. never saw that. And, you know, it always bothered mm. me. But uh, if that's yeah. starting to happen, then I, then I, you know, that, that's very heartening. I've been thinking about, like, abolish ICE, too, and the resonance that that's had, you know? And I I wonder if later on we'll see 
that that is also connected to this abolition moment and you know it's all of a piece and yeah i don't know what you guys think I, though i do think that the question of the national so there could be the question of oh no one's just asked us but it could also be like an act of hostility a sort of nativist sense that you raise and mm-hmm. you know i'm not out there but i've seen it expressed on the internet so that is a question like is that yeah. real is it out there and how oh it's for it? sure out I there i mean look you know like yeah. there's responses to jennifer's article that are like that you know um yeah where uh people will see a question of solidarity and shared struggle as a version of all lives matter um, yeah. And I don't know. I, yeah. like, that stuff, I think you can kind of ignore. Because I will say the one evolution that I I've seen so. since 2016 to now is that in 2016, the whole movement was just about incantations and whether or not you're saying all lives matter or black lives matter in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. you know? Okay. And about like shutting down highways and shit like that, which, you know, is all stuff I approve. But the public messaging was about, you know, trying to figure out this rhetorical game, right? And now it's not. It's much less about that right now than it was in That's 2016. Good. And I do think that that is like a sign of, like, I'm not trying to talk about it like it's a child and I'm like its parent. But, you know, that's a movement. That, that is an evolution within the movement that I think is heartening to everybody in the movement. Um, and who cares what the number one best-selling book in America is? Right. Yeah. It has, yeah. Like Jordan Peterson was like the best-selling book in America, you know? So, yeah. like, it doesn't take that many books yeah, to mean, be the number one bestseller in nonfiction. It does. It, it does feel like we're in, like in that gray zone now, where it, where it's it could go in that direction. Yeah. It could go in, yeah. you know, kind of stay keep the momentum it had yeah, before. It definitely could go revert back to that, but um, you know that's why we have this podcast to make sure that it doesn't. Um, <laughs> all right. So the last part of our show is going to be uh, listener questions from you. We've gotten a lot of these, and Andy, Tammy, and I have all picked one. We really appreciate the feedback. You can always get in touch with us at, uh, at on Twitter at at ttsgpod, and you can email us at I don't remember email. Is it ti- time time to say goodbye pod? Oh, yeah, time to say goodbye pod at gmail dot com. <laughs> um, those are the two best ways to get in touch with us. Or you can at me Tammy or Andy on Twitter. Uh, and we will compile all of your questions, and from time to time we'll do something like this. So, Tammy, you go first. What's the question that you have? I was interested in a question that was directed at Andy. Andy did um, an interview with Brian Hugh of New Blue Magazine about tankyism, and uh, we had an extremely brilliant Filipino guy write in, (laughs) Carlo Francisco, who talked about the fact that sometimes he sees anti-tankies like Andy, simplifying what principled Marxist-Leninists think. He writes, I think of pro-China sentiment not so much as a newfound Chinese nationalism among people who don't live there, but simply as a pushback to the overwhelming Western consensus and propaganda. I mean, I think of my own case as illustrative. I'm from the Philippines and migrated to the U.S. after high school. I have no special affection or connection to China or Chinese culture. I also keep up with the news at home, and as a result, I have major issues with what the PRC is doing with regards to the South China Sea. But at the end of the day, what they're doing simply cannot be compared to U.S. imperialism. So, Andy, the question I think Carlo is asking is, isn't what, you know, people we kind of dismiss as sort of knee-jerk pro-PRC, isn't what they're doing just trying to contextualize and contest U.S. imperialism and what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah, and this is something I was thinking about during the interview and afterwards that, I think for some of us, we see a lot of the Chinese nationals or Chinese diaspora 
get involved in this, but that's certainly not the entire group. If you're online a lot, and I'm also kind of wondering how much of this is just an online phenomenon. Mm. Um, although I've seen some groups um, in real life pr- make these arguments as well. Um, if you're online a lot, there's a lot of, uh, you know, like, I don't know if you want to name their names, but like there's a lot of famous people on the internet with a bit large following just constantly challenging anything um, anything about like Hong Kong or anything about Xinjiang as sort of Western propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's certainly not just a Chinese diaspora thing. I think that was just something Brian and I were kind of interested in closely. I think, and you know, this is this is what Carlo is saying. I think is really welcome to hear a different perspective that's neither U.S. nor Chinese from yeah. someone who is probably affected by someone from the Philippines who. You know, has a very long history, of course, with the United States, but also more recently, that whole part of the world uh, probably kind of sees China as the kind of the new, the new imperialist. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I would say, I would. I think. I mean, I think what he was honestly when I was reading his email, I just kind of thought, well, this is actually a very perfect illustration of what how this stuff works. Mm. Of it's not so much about being pro-China; it's about um, opposing the United States at all costs. But then you kind of slip into, I think, you know, yeah. something we've talked about throughout this podcast is like, you don't want to slip into that either or choice. You have to, you should try to question the choice itself. But perhaps that's a privileged thing for us to do, right? Where like, if I'm a tanky today versus a U.S. patriot tomorrow, like it doesn't really change a lot of the material conditions of my life, right? It's just kind of this intellectual political decision we've made. But perhaps for people whose like lives and families are at, are at stake, you know, because um, they rely upon aid from the United States or aid from the Chinese government. Um, this might be a much more, much more of a forced choice. Um, I, but I would say, like in, uh, intellectually, or you know, from the you know, as, as a kind of abstract matter, we should you should try not not to choose to kind of backslide into choosing one imperial power as against another one. And and I think one thing that Brian and I were trying to do is just just kind of hold up the mirror between China and the United States up to one another, or whatever the metaphor is, right? Trying to show how, like, these are not, it's not as if one is worse than the other, that a lot of these things, to try to de-exoticize China. I think China is seen as, for better or for worse, as different than the United States, and different in the sense of they're not as bad as the United States. And we're not saying that they are bad or better. We're just trying to say they're kind of the same. But what is the, who kind of thinks that China is not as bad as the United States? A lot of That's people. what this guy is saying. Oh, okay. This is what Carla was saying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, for instance, you, you know, something I've been interested in recently is like the tr- treatment of Xinjiang Uyghurs in Xinjiang by the Chinese government. That could that a lot of times it's just kind of seen as this thing we don't we can't understand we can't judge from the outside, and if you call it human rights abuse, that's just imperialism. I think the most constructive way to address that is to kind of show how the Chinese state is taking policies that it learns from the United States. Mm-hmm. and from Western Europe and the war on terror. And they're learning a lot of the same practices, a lot of the same um, rhetoric. And we're kind of learning the kind of trading technology secrets in terms of like surveillance and discipline of these groups. So if you oppose all these things in the United States, then you should also oppose is them Is that type of moral relativism right? still? And like, you know, like that sort of we, we can't know what they're doing. Is that still a large force in these conversations? Because I, I feel like it's diminishing... Whereas I would say 20 years ago or something like that, when I was in college, it was the main way to understand the rest of the world, which is that you don't say bad things about foreign countries because it's racist (laughs) to do so. But don't you feel like that's, don't you think that's receding a little bit? 
I don't think it's so much cultural relativism. I think it's has to do with the just, well, uh, there's a really weird thing going on with media and like who to trust in the media and how China kind of has its own set of media that just, if you read what Chinese media says and what U- US media says, you're just describing two completely different realities. Yeah. And I think that makes it a little bit, that, that I think it's really easy for people to lapse into conspiracy theory. Yeah, then, no, right? I, I agree like, with that. Okay. Right, yeah. the, Tammy, yeah. what... Uh, do you have any, any other thoughts? What's your, oh yeah, Tammy, do you have thoughts? We, we should try and breeze, we should try and bust through these. Okay. Tammy, no, I think that's, that's helpful, thanks. Okay, Andy, what's yeah. your question? Um, so I guess a couple, there's a combination of Michelle La, who tweeted at us, um, who is kind of asking for advice about how to address her Asian, or their Asian Canadian friends, about why BLM is important and how their Asian friends keep criticizing black on Asian crime racism. And combined with uh, a short question from someone named Zhong Jia-san, who asks, how would our letter, my letter, addressing Asian, uh, anti-black Asian racism would go? And this is a response you know, to that post I wrote a couple of weeks ago. And I don't know how much practical advice I have, but this, these, these questions did, um, I think, pinpoint something that I realized was missing from my post, which was, I don't actually address anti-black racism among Asians. Right, like I'm kind of criticizing the format of the genre, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> like um, Jay was just talking about. But I do think this is a question I don't actually. Well, know okay, let's let's clarify what the question is. is. The question is, what do you do with friends, Asian friends, who say, right, um, who right. say, uh, right. why should we care about them when every video I see of an Asian person being called a racial slur, or being punched, is is they're be, they're almost always being punched and being screamed at by black people, right? That's what the question is, I think, at its core. I think Basically. that's part of one of the, the first one, I think the basic yeah, but question we're doing is, one question. Yeah, yeah, Let's yeah. do the first question where okay. that, that is the question, right? Like, I, like, I support BLM, but my friends believe this thing, right? Yeah. Okay, so, like, let, let, Tammy, what do you think about that? It's a, I was going to ask you, Jay. <laughs> no, Tammy, we're not pulling up short <laughs> I... and uncomfortable topics here. Because podcasts are uncancelable, we're just gonna say how we feel because that's All what right. we're here for. Tammy, I'm ready. What do you think? I'm yeah, ready. Yeah. Um, I would <laughs> say that I think we can't rely on a few samples to tell us the whole story, and that we also need to stop thinking about race as this kind of zero sum thing where non-white people have to fight over the crumbs of capital. Mm. Um, and tear each other apart. And I think if we zoom out for a minute and we can see that this is a minority of cases and that people's oppressions are tied up together. Do you think it's a minority of cases? <laughs> what do you think, Jay? Well, look, look, the, the unsaid reality here, and I'm not going to ascribe this to either of you, so um, I'm just going to ascribe this to what I'm saying is that in my own life, you know, having grown up in the South in an area that was very diverse, quote unquote, but, you know, had a lot of different people of every type except for Asians. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think in the lives of many young Asian Americans, uh, and maybe in particular men, the people who you experience overt racism from are generally black people, right? That is a real, that's a reality. Um, That it's generally, white people will be racist towards you in a much more subtle way, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, and that, that, so you that, felt that was true throughout the South for folks, right? 
So. Oh yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's true for Latino kids that I went to high school with too. You mm-hmm. know, like that. Okay. Um, like, but you know, the white kids were mostly rich liberal kids. You know, so that yeah. if anything they wanted to be a minority. You know, in the sort of oh, like, funny. weird way. I see. But um, gotcha. uh, so that that is something that I, I will say that like you know like that's that's a problem, right? And then that's what when part of the code of like anti-racism or anti-blackness within our community is that conversation, right? The first one is like, oh, well, they don't study very hard and they're lazy. And the second one is that question. Well, they, within the Korean community, Tammy, it's specifically, well, during the 1992 riots, they burned down all of our fucking stores. So why would we help them? You know, those are real things. Like, and like, those are the types of conversations that I find that the academy completely elides, not to insult you, Andy, but, you know, like conversations within Asian American studies don't don't talk about that. Why do they not talk about it? Because it is almost impossible to create a sense of real solidarity with your colleagues, with your specific colleagues that you're on a panel with. Right. When you're saying stuff like that, because uh, you're supposed to sort of say the thing that that, uh, you know, like you're supposed to pretend that that a summit that happened in 1994 after the L.A. riots between like you know, like four UCLA professors somehow solved the racism <laughs> between, like, you know, Asian and black communities. Um, right. So, yeah, like, I, to answer the question, I don't really have an answer to that question about what she should do about her friends. You know, I think that her friends are not going to change their minds because that's their life experience and they think everybody is just lying to them and they think that their friend is virtue signaling, you know? Um, yeah. Now, yeah. Well, okay, so my academic, perhaps, response to this question was, to answer this, we have to address... Why would Asian people be racist towards black people in the first place? But it sounds like, Jay, to answer your scenario, which your answer seems to be that's like how it comes out of like life experience, then why would black people be racist towards Asian yeah. people in the first place? And I think to get at that is, I think there hasn't been the article or the book yet that I know of that has answered these questions. But I do think it has to do with, you know, we have to talk about, we have to be able to talk about something that's larger than this group versus that group. And I think Tammy was kind of getting at that about how we're kind of put into a competition with each other and 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 what people are perceiving as like this group is worse than that other group is um, very much about, and what I was kind of saying in the article, which I didn't say that cl- clearly perhaps was, uh, I think a lot of times racism is about classism or class that gets naturalized, right? So it's about structures that get turned into personal qualities, mm-hmm. failure, mm-hmm. failures or success, success stories, right? Um, and, you know, I mentioned I mentioned to you guys offline that there's an article out there that's floating among academics about anti-blackness in Chinese history, and the article was interesting about nationalism and foreignness and all that stuff is interesting, but it struck me like this is true of a lot of academic articles about racism. It doesn't really address why yeah. black people in particular. Yeah. Right. It's about why foreigners. Yeah. Why Chinese people are against foreigners, but then that would you in theory would apply to equally to Indians and Europeans and black yeah. people too, right? So there's a certain specificity that gets missed in, in those academic well, articles. In that academic speak you're talking just about. Just to clarify, Andy, so I'm I, not saying that it all comes out of personal experience. I'm saying that the I'm saying that there's structural reasons why these two groups are fighting with each other in Los right. Angeles in 1992, okay. right? Like and prior right. to it, there are structural reasons why uh, you know Sunja Du's shop is in Latasha Harlan's neighborhood, right? And there are structural right. reasons right, right, right. why uh, Sunja Du is has a gun behind the counter right like those are all things that need to be discussed but the baseline of it can't just be that at the point where somebody says 
or, or it's not even the baseline. I'm, it's not prescriptive, but the the unsaid prom is that you know, if you as a Korean person who's like fifty five years old, who's or sixty five years old, whose store was burned down during the L A riots, if somebody goes to that person and says you should go march for Black Lives Matter because of you know we have to stop <laughs> structural racism. That person is going to turn around and say, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm yeah. the real victim of structural racism here. I, gr- right. I came here with nothing. They burned down my store. The cops didn't protect me. And uh, I lost everything and I had to start over again. And nobody helped me, you know? And, like, right. these kids, like, when the other people, when they, when they compete with my kid to get into Harvard, their kid gets into Harvard with a SAT score that's 250 points lower. That type of... Yeah statement is like the core of the problem and like we can't like we're so ashamed of that guy that we can't even acknowledge his concerns and we just have to say we have to smother all of it in this sort of like we must address racism with anti-blackness within our own communities but you know that's a lot of fucking people who feel that way you know and so i don't know what the answer to the question is except that i feel like the other thing that i was talking about was just like gotta like get over this deference shit you know and we have to like have this conversation (laughs) we have to stop talking about this stuff as if like white people who are liberal who are going to judge us are watching us and judging us on it whether or not we're woke or not you know or even black people Mm -hmm. are are watching us and judging us on it um but anyway i'm sorry to rant so much but like this stuff has been you know this is what makes this is what has made me so mad about the anti (laughs) You know, we have to address anti-blackness within our communities, which is like, okay, let's address it. Let's fucking talk about it. And that's when people shut up. Right, 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 right. This And this kind of gets back to the earlier discussion about, like, um, nativism, potential nativism or black-white paradigms that we kind of pretend like nothing happened after the 60s. Yeah. In our um, not all, not us not everyone right but uh, there is a tendency to kind of pretend nothing has happened since the 60s in the political language we have, including Asian Americans. Um, when if you look at the numbers, like we're compl- and you know, this is a point you've made, we're completely different people. <laughs> we're completely different race, yeah. you know, than the than the Asians who were here in the 60s. Um, okay, Tammy, our last question is uh, from Sam. He is a, a student at Rutgers, I believe. Right? Uh, is that right, Andy? I, yeah. yeah, his name is Sam Cow, <laughs> and he's a big fan of the show. And he writes. Uh, he's written all of us. I think he's a very nice kid. And uh, what he asked <laughs> thanks, was, what, am I not supposed to say that he's nice? No, yeah, I he said is. thanks, wonderful. Sam. I, I do. I, 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 we ha- he wrote a paper that I read that I thought was actually extremely compelling. And one of the questions that he has is, uh, is, it, is it time for us to have a new Asian American historiography, right? And the question is basically like, are things like, is like just reciting Gracely Bugs over and over <laughs> and over again really going to keep working? Is this sort of idea of the AAPA and the Third World Liberation Front, which was, you know, lasted like two years or something like that and didn't have that many people, um, is that really a real history or not? And do we need a better history? So, Tammy, I have a very specific question for you, uh, sort of dovetailing off of this. Do you think that the, the, a better historiography of Asian America would be a labor history? Yeah, I was going to say I would go to labor and I would go to war. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> explain the labor part. The labor part is that, first of all, all migrations are labor migrations in this country, Mm -hmm. full stop. And I think the Asian ones are no different. And so we can 
think about, you know, of course, we've talked about kind of like what we've called the greatest hits of Asian American history, where we go from (laughs) Chinese exclusion up through basically Yuri and Grace. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And Vincent Chen. And Vincent, oh, that's right. Yeah, Vincent Chen. Um, But yeah, I would have a different history where I talk about cane workers in Hawaii and cannery workers in Washington State. And I would talk about um, you know, Asian American Filipino overlaps with what we romanticize as the Chavez movement, you know, with great workers in California, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's like a very good way of talking about like why people get here, you know, so which is like the main question of like, why is there an Asian American history? Like, what are the waves that have come? There have all been labor waves, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. And then we need to account for, you know, the high skilled and very well educated workers now. But there are connections. Um and then, you know, I would, I would say that the, the other part around war is essential to talk about the Philippines and Vietnam yeah. and Laos and Korea and why we keep doing this, you know. Yeah. yeah. And how the, and around the war part, just like how the differing incentives within the Pacific theater, quote unquote, led to different immigration patterns and different attempts to reach out to different immigrant groups to come to the United States. I think also I've been thinking about how like the the language of forever war we've been using more or some leftists have been using more, which I think is such an important phrase for us to all be aware of that why America became the exceptionalist nation that it convinces itself it must be really has a lot to do with the Philippines and the Korean War. And there are new historiographies that think about like the turning point in American foreign policy is essentially having been in Asia in the mid century. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think like. Also, thinking about that as our history is so important. Like, Asian American and Asian intervention by the U.S. is central to, like, basically the evolution of American foreign policy, period. Yeah. But specifically World War II onward. Well, I guess the Philippines. Specific, right. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It started a long time ago, you know? And so anyway, I, I say that because I think all of that is constitutive of who Asian Americans are now. That is our history. Yeah, and it's not like because right now I would I, I think that there's too much where it is about our own like sort of neurotic place in the country, you know, yes. and it's too much about like well how do how do we fit in with X race or Y race, right? And that's when you can only really talk about Grace Lee Boggs and 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 Yuri, right? You know, <laughs> you know because it's the only two it's like the only two examples where there's any right. where there's only overlap, you know, and and the riots obviously <laughs> exactly. that ninety two riots. Um, and that's about it. It's like three things that happened. If Grace Lee Boggs had never existed, or you know, if she had like decided to do, at some point, if she had been like, listen, I'm just going to pursue the cello or something like that, then then we would have then we have nothing to talk about at all. Um, um, I'm, uh, uh, Andy, what do you think? You're a, his- you are literally a historian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, my hot take that without having done any of the research and writing, my hot take is there could be a hypothesis that Asian American history only begins with, let's say World War II, but probably 1965. If you just look yeah. at the demographics of Asian American and everything before that is like a prehistory. It's like, it's nice. It's worth noting, but it's really like a period when, and, you know, Hawaii is a colony. They're not a state yet. So do they see themselves as United States citizens? That's a mm. question. Uh, because they're not allowed to become citizens. Isn't that, yeah. isn't that true, right. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not until like 1952 yeah. or something. I think. So yeah. I would say what we're really talking about is a specific group of migrants from East Asia. Uh, and then we can talk about you know, South Asia and Central Asia beyond that. From the 60s onwards. And then this notion of Asian American history gets kind of invented after the fact to build legitimacy for itself 
and to kind of produce, you know, ground to stand upon just the way like all countries do that. And when they talk about, you know, since, you know, ever since this time period, we, we, uh, we've been a proud people, blah, 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 blah. But really, I think, um, if we're being honest, right, Asian American history is like two histories, right? There's a prehistory, and then there's like the real history that we're talking about mm. of Asian Americans as like a, as an interest group in the United States that can actually have a voice and demand, you know, Asian studies departments. Um, well, I guess that begins, you know, pretty early in the '60s as well. Uh, but you know, it's like but the it, the bridge between those two, though, doesn't don't you think Cami's solution of war and labor? Don't you think that solves that? I think war war certainly does, but I guess what I'm trying to w- guard against as the historian, right, is an as anachronism, right, which is like taking present his concerns. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So like the thing that the, the thing that happens with that the most right now is that there's a lot of discussion about the Chinatown Los Angeles lynchings where Chinese people were dragged out of their homes and when is lynched and hung in the street. When is that? Um, it happened, I don't know, like 1869 or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, One of those. And that uh, a lot of uh, the way that it's used is that it's used by fraternities. Yeah. You know, so like Asian fraternities create their own historiography and they basically, when you come in, they're like, you know, hello, young chink, <laughs> you don't know anything about your history. Mm. Let me tell you, my brother. And then they give you this whole history right. of Asian America and the history of Asian America also includes shit like the, you know, death march of Bataan and right. stuff like that. But it's like Vincent Chin. Right. It's about like the, the lynchings and it's about like a, it's like about a history of oppression and suffering right. Right. now all these fucking kids came over here in 1990 when their parents moved from china and so like <laughs> like what connection do they really have to those chinese now like you can believe that there is a connection back to that and that american violence against the asian body replicates itself over and over and over again i personally don't believe that there's that much of a connection to there and it doesn't sound like you do either but i don't know i think that that's the way that history is built now Clearly, you know, like it's the way that history is discussed now yeah. is that this idea of like sort of spectral spirits going in the past and, you know, binding us <laughs> through our, 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 our common blood. Like, like that's, that's the way it's discussed. But I, I, I also reject that, Andy. So I'm glad that you did I think, too, well, I've, yeah, I mean, it's a question of like, it's always like the historian, what historians are supposed to do is not just talk about old shit all the time. It's to talk about when do things actually change in time? Right. And so that's what I'd be yeah. curious about, like not not to project continuity, but to kind of figure out when is there not necessarily something brand new, but something new happening. Um, and to go back to what Tammy was saying about war, I think that is that would be a good part. Like, let's say World War Two, most obviously, right? Japanese Empire versus the United States, not an empire yet, United States in the Pacific that kind of produces a lot of this stuff. Mm. And I think we should also kind of point out that what's really happening is the United States is kind of picking up where the European powers left off. Right. So there's there's that uh, like there, it's not just like Asia was this empty place that the United States, you know, discovers. But they sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, with the caveat that the U.S. had already intervened in Asia in the 19th century. In yes, the Philippines, but not of, so much East. Uh, they were like, I mean, the gentleman's agreement, essentially. I mean, this is not right, like right, right. extremely and technical, the, and but the, what I will. What, what, all I mean is that I think like this is fascinating. <laughs> Sorry. Somebody like Wikipedia. Enforcement. Enforcement. <laughs> no, 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 Enforcement no, no, treaty. Yeah, 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 exactly. Eddie, don't, um, don't, don't history correct. All right, we're, we're just flowing here. We're not pulling up. Tammy, what was, what, what were you saying? No, I just, I just mean that. I, I think that, I understand what you're saying about only indexing Asian America to the '60s, but I'm curious if you think then that that's true for every sort of hyphenated 
you know, kind of like demographic term yeah. or sort of like race category, yeah. because you can, all of those terms are essentially products of that era to, in the sense that they became political right, projects, right, right? right? But I, and I don't, but I don't think actually it's completely invalid to read back because even though I agree with you guys on the kind of spectral bodily spirits yeah. thing, like there are artifacts of law. Yeah. That are still right. like Korematsu, yeah, sure, sure, right? Sure. So that there are all these things that are residues in archives and right. in documents and in laws that regulate us, and those remain. Yeah. So there is an inheritance. Yeah, and this this is a question we had in once um, about like what does African American history include slavery? Which sounds at first like really obvious, like of course it does, but when you think about African American history, thinking about Black Americans as a sort of self conscious political. Yeah, who asked this right. question so that we that we don't attribute it to you being like, does slavery matter? No, no, no. That's a, a, obviously, that's not what we're saying. Right. No, no, no. But is this a question that you asked yourself or is this a yeah, question like, that's discussed amongst so, like, historians? Okay. Like, my, this is an yeah. FM history. My, my history department was like doing a search. And like, so okay, no, but this is, okay, no, that, so I, I just want to make sure right, that right, it's right. not, but, that but, this is a question that people ask. Yeah, and, right. it's, and okay, I think it's ahead. a legitimate right. question in terms of if you want an African, uh, his, African-American history is it about like civil rights, Jim Crow. That's what we kind of think of with African-Americans because yeah. they're citizens, they're participating, they're fighting for their rights versus like the 18th century where it's about just mostly histories of like, you know, s- slave labor. And that's, you know, its own history that's really important, but like that's a different so the same thing kind of goes like by asian american are we talking about the history of the people who are asian americans right or a history of this like process involving asians in america asia and america and the people in between you know and uh Mm. you know that's worth i don't know uh yeah no but i i I still think that from a debate sense you know like andy and i are both policy debaters (laughs) and tammy actually was a lawyer so (laughs) um for debate sense, I would say that Tammy's solution of uh, Tammy's Tammy's plan of uh, doing labor and war still solves that, right? Uh, wait, Tammy's, Tammy's war labor plan solves all. No, yeah, twentieth century is. I'm so yeah. glad. I think twentieth yeah. century is the. And it avoids all the harms of uh, of like just an identity based uh, thing that only questions like whether or not yeah. we belong, yeah. right? Um, because uh, the question is not whether not we belong. The question is, how did we get here? Yeah. Um, and what, what are we doing here? Which is a far more interesting question than do we belong? The answer to do we belong is no. <laughs> Jay, do you intend your book to be a kind of histori- historiography of this era? Um, I can't talk about it, but uh, <laughs> from 1965 on, yeah, there's a lot of history of it, you know, and there's a lot of questions about belonging. But uh, I think that uh, it is mostly under the understanding of patterns of immigration. You know, like what does the first generation do? What does the second generation do? And then what is the expectation for the third generation? Like mm-hmm. the, and so okay. it, it is questions about that. So maybe I would add to yours, Tammy. I think that generational stuff is interesting too in yeah. that sort of way. And yeah. that, um, that, that we now are in the third generation, I would say, of like people who mostly came over. I'm only thinking about Koreans here because you know I'm a mm. I'm a I'm a nationalist, but <laughs> I'm a I'm a chauvinist, a Korean chauvinist. But Tammy, like we're now like most of the Koreans came in like the they didn't come right at 1965. They generally came in the 70s, mm. and so we're in the almost third generation. So right? Your kid is the third gen, right? My kid's the third yeah. generation. Yeah. So and Andy's kid, um, yeah, your guys' kids. Some of those third generation kids are probably around high school age now. You know, or maybe starting college, yeah. but uh, but um, you know, they have very different thoughts about being Korean than 
I did, or you did, Cammy, and certainly different. So are you guys going to let your kids be artists now? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want my kid to be a doctor. I'm serious. You know? <laughs> regression. Regression yeah. in the third generation. <laughs> what was the point of this? Yeah, I know. Be like, look. Your dad gets to be the dilettante, you know, and yeah. you have to, you have to, you guys got you have to get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> you have to contribute to society. Like you can't just sit around <laughs> an apartment hanging out with your friends, living off family money, you know, like, I'm sorry, you can't do it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, uh, do you guys have anything else here? I think we're at a very good time to stop. We're at an hour 30. And um, is there anything else that you guys want to say? Thanks to all the readers yeah. and listeners, though. Really appreciate it. Yeah, we've Send more uh, questions. We really had a response that I find to be very uh, heartening and unexpected. Uh, yeah. We really did start this because we were all in quarantine and we thought we, <laughs> it would be fun, but we also thought we had something to say. And the fact that it's resonated with so many of you is very uh, nice here in it uh and please keep sending those nice messages or angry messages either one um and uh we will talk to you next week <laughs>